The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At roughly 3 a.m., November 13, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald Joseph Butch DeFeo Jr. took a 35 caliber Marlin rifle, the kind often used to hunt deer, and he went on a very different sort of hunting spree. This night, Butch used his recently purchased rifle to execute his entire immediate family, who were all sleeping at the family home on 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island. Ronald J. DeFeo Sr., 43, his wife, Louise, 42, two sons, John, 9, and Mark, 12, and two daughters, Allison, 13, and Dawn, 18, were all found shot to death the next day after Butch showed up at Henry's Bar, a local tavern near his home at approximately 6.30 p.m., shouting, you gotta help me, I think my mother and father are shot. Butch had worked half a shift at his grandfather's Brooklyn Buick car dealership and then hung out with friends for a few hours before allegedly heading home, finding some of the bodies, and then running to Henry's bar. A friend at the bar called the police, and within 24 hours, Butch would confess to the killings. Thirteen months later, the Lutz family, George and Kathleen, and Kathleen's three children, Daniel 9, Christopher 7, and Missy 5, moved in after getting one hell of a deal on a place. You can get a huge discount uh, on a home after a family gets murdered by their son, as it turns out, uh, like a half-off discount. And then 28 days later, they moved right back on out, claiming malevolent spirits had been assaulting them, driving them mad, and doing all kinds of other dickhead ghost stuff. A book about their alleged paranormal experiences in the Amityville home uh, spawned a few movies. The Amityville Horror uh, book would go on to be published two years later and sell an estimated 10 million copies worldwide, but is it true? Was the house plagued by demonic forces? Did unnatural swarms of flies bombard the home in the middle of the winter? Did a Catholic priest hear an unseen force clearly tell him to get out after feeling a cold and violent presence in the room? Was Kathy Lutz attacked by an invisible force and lifted off the ground? Were red, evil, and glowing eyes spotted looking into the house? Did the dog refuse to go into a secret red room not in the home's blueprints? And so much more other spooky questions uh, we need to look into answers for. 
So let's find out. Let's take a look at Amityville. Let's suck on a good old-fashioned haunted house in this demonically possessed edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hello, Time Suckers and future space lizards. Welcome to this 1100 iTunes review bonus edition of The Suck. Hail Nimrod. And today on the spooky October episode, hail Lucifina as well. This is Time Suck, and I am its host, Dan Cummins, a.k.a. Grandmaster Suck, a.k.a. Father of Suck, a.k.a. Almighty Sucker of Time, a.k.a. Fucker Time Suck, a.k.a. all the other crazy titles you weirdos have come up with this past week. I love it. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by the Astonishing Legends podcast, who I approached about introducing each other's podcast to our audiences because I'm a fan. Love getting to promote what I enjoy, and I enjoy Astonishing Legends. Uh, Host Scott Philbrook, Forrest Burgess, and their incredibly well-informed team take you on some serious deep dives on everything strange, dark, odd, unusual throughout history, and damn it, do they do their homework. Very thorough in their findings, which I appreciate, because it's hard to find an entertaining podcast that does that. It's a lot of work. This is no Wikipedia read these guys are doing. Uh, They have a great website that makes me uh, very jealous, actually. AstonishingLegends.com features links to their research resources. Time Suck is going to get one of those, you know, going on too at their new website uh, once the app launches. Uh, And they even have Amazon links to the books they use for research if you want to dig in further on your own. It's a really amazing website. So give them a listen. Highly recommend it. Uh, The Bell Witch is an excellent recent and scary two-parter that'll get you into the Halloween spirit. And the very creepy and spooky subject of black-eyed children, that is on the Time Suck list as well, I know many of you have written in about that, is coming up uh, on Astonishing Legends just in time for Halloween. So again, get your paranormal fix in, check out Astonishing Legends podcast, available on iTunes, Audio Boom, Stitcher, Google Play, and elsewhere, all over the web. Link to their website for more info in today's episode description. All right, a couple thank yous uh, now. Thank you for all the uh, iTunes reviews. Again, led to this bonus episode. Already more than 1,300 reviews. Uh, so you're getting another bonus episode on November 3rd, and then weeks after that, you'll get the 1,300 review episode on November 24th. So much bonus suck, I'm having to schedule them out. And, and after realizing how much work it takes to put a full episode together, uh, with or without volunteer help, volunteer help always makes it a better episode. Still a lot of work, though. Uh, I know I now I, I need a, a good three weeks in between uh, bonus episodes to not go completely insane uh, so I can get a somewhat human level of sleep. Wish I was a robot, didn't require sleep, and I could just pump out stories around the clock, but uh, not yet. So come on, Elon Musk, get some futuristic shit developed already. I want to be a robot. Post-humanism, here I come. I'm ready. Anyway, if you keep those reviews pouring in, the bonus episodes are just going to keep rolling out. One every three weeks. I think that's a good pace. Uh, I'd love to keep that going. And, and that really truly is the best I can do. Especially once the app launches and I have the time, uh, the Secret Suck bonus podcast also being produced on a weekly basis. Uh, any more suck than that and the quality will go to shit and I'll suck my goddamn brains out against the wall behind me. And my lifeless body will, will slump and suck its way onto the floor and then into a cremation furnace. But love the reviews. Love them. Stuff like uh, Best Way to Get Through the Work Week by Galloway Guitar, who went on to say, I first met Dan Cummins when I was an intern on the Monsters in the Morning radio show in Orlando, Florida, back in 2015. He recently rolled through Orlando to perform at the Orlando Improv, and I heard him back on the air. Ever since, I've been hooked on Time Suck. It's a great way to explore some dark and not-so-dark topics in history in a comical format. I listen every day at work. Can't wait until a new episode is posted. For those looking for a way to learn and be entertained, there is no better way than listening to Time Suck. Well, thank you, Galloway Guitar. Appreciate that. Man, Monsters of, Monsters of Rock, man, those guys also, uh, you know, help produce Tom and Dan. So those BDMs, you guys, 
uh, out there. A lot, a lot of relationships with the uh, Monsters in the Morning radio show. I think I said Monsters of Rock. Monsters, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, iTunes reviewer uh, Steph Kahn was less impressed with Time Sucks, saying, not for me. And then adding, I couldn't get into this podcast because of the weird, supposed to be funny, I think, tangents that the host goes off on. Fair enough, Steph. You know what? Fair enough. Not everyone's cut out to be a member of the cult of the curious. Not everyone appreciates my humor. I'm cool with that. And some people, like yourself, are cut out to give over 75% of the many things they review on iTunes one-star ratings. <laughs> I clicked on your profile, Steph, and not that you're listening now, and, uh, you know, you're probably busy not liking something else, one star and something else. So, so keep keep, uh, keep that troll game on point there, Steph. Uh, but ser- seriously, the suck is not for everyone, but damn it, I'm so glad it's working for you guys. You curious and irreverent, beautiful bastards. And I hope you keep coming to some stand-up shows this year. Uh, Jersey tonight and tomorrow night, shows at Bananas Comedy Club in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, October 20, 21. Beat the date in Ohio Funny Bone, November 2 through the 5th. Spokane, Washington. Come on, Spokane Comedy Club, November 9 through 11. Dr. Grins in Grand Rapids, Michigan, November 30th through December 2nd. St. Louis Phony Bone, uh, December 7th through the 10th. Comedy Club on State in Madison, Wisconsin, December 14th through 16th. Oh, God, I'm going to be losing my mind in December. And Comedy Works in Denver, Colorado, December 28th through New Year's Eve. All kinds of cool dates lined up for uh, the rest of the year and a lot more coming up in 2018. Going to get some live podcasts in 2018, too. Uh, and now, it's the Amityville Horror. All right, structuring the whole show a little differently today. I want to address all the criticisms regarding uh, Amityville being a hoax and the history of the house up front. Uh, we're going to get that all out of the way for all my skeptics out there, and then uh, we'll close on a, a little a little haunting time suck timeline as it was reported by the Lutz family uh, to the author of the Amityville Horror, uh, Jay Anson, as far as I know, how they reported to him the book uh, all the movies have been based on, and you can decide for yourself if you want to believe it. So I will say, if you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, you, you know I'm a skeptic, but but this one uh, creeps me the fuck out. No way I would spend a night in that house. No no way. Not interested after this week's research. I watched uh, the 1979 original, The Amityville Horror, alone uh, in my dark basement with my dog Penny after doing most of my research, and it, it still creeped me out. Uh, it was weird, man. The TV kept cutting out. Never, never done that before. And Penny, who usually doesn't give a shit about what's on the TV, she kept uh, freaking out, man. She kept growling and barking and screaming. I'm not, I'm not even kidding. I've never seen her act that way. So for all my skepticism, skeeve me out a little bit. Uh, I definitely was not brave enough to turn back around uh, when I felt like I was being watched, heading up the stairs out of the basement in total darkness after turning off the TV. So so damn you, Lucifina. Was it you, time suck devil, watching me from the darkness, convincing me to go down there, have a few drinks in the first place, instead of working more on the computer? Oh, if only I had Bojangles to sick upon your evil ass. Okay, before we get into the story of the alleged haunting, uh, let's talk about uh, what we know for sure went on at 112 Ocean Avenue. The murder of the DeFeo family, the last family to live in the home before the Lutzes. On November 21st, 1975, a jury found Bush DeFeo guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. That's a lot. Sent to the Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Beacom, New York. Uh, his appeals to the parole board have all been turned down. He's currently 66 years old, locked up at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in the town of Fallsburg, New York. DeFeo's defense attorney, William Weber, uh, attempted an insanity plea for Butch, and the murder suspect told jurors that he heard voices inside the house, voices from the house telling him to kill his family. Uh, the psychiatrist for the defense, Dr. Daniel Schwartz, supported this claim, saying that uh, DeFeo was neurotic and suffered from disassociative disorder. But the psychiatrist for the prosecution, Dr. Harold Zolan, uh, provided, uh, proved that DeFeo suffered from antisocial personality disorder, a mental illness that made him aware of his actions. 
He wasn't motivated by voices, but instead by his own self-centered attitude and, and, and desires. He knew what he was doing. Uh, antisocial personality disorder. Yeah, I, I would say if you're the kind of guy who brutally murders not only his parents, but also all of his brothers and sisters, you got some social uh, or some social issues. You got some antisocial tendencies. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't seem to play that well with others. Uh, when a Suffolk County detective had originally questioned Butch about uh, who could be a suspect at the beginning of the murder investigation, uh, he told them he thought mafia hitman uh, Louis Fellini may have been responsible. Uh, Butch cited an old grudge between Fellini and the DeFeo family over some work Butch did for him at the family car dealership, told police uh, he'd been up late watching TV, unable to sleep, left for work early, said he believed his family was alive when he left for work. Then he told him his whereabouts for the rest of the day. Police placed uh, Butch in protective custody initially as they searched for a suspect. But then when uh, police searched the DeFeo house in the uh, hours after the crime, uh, Butch's testimony started to not make much sense. They found an empty box for a recently purchased 35 caliber Marlin gun in Butch's room. Same caliber gun uh, the DeFeos were killed with. What a fucking idiot Butch was, you know? Just, I just figured out how to get away with the murder of my, my entire family. I'm going to pop them all in their sleep. And expose the gun, but but I'm gonna leave the leftover bullets and receipts for the gun and, and the bullets in my room. Just put that stuff in my room because police never look in nearby rooms for murder evidence. Easy peasy. Then, then I'll blame some random mob guy. Probably has an alibi, but who cares? You know, he's a mob guy, so the police will just take my word for everything. Won't even investigate him at all. Then he'll go to jail, and I won't even have to play Wednesday night board games with my family anymore. No more being occasionally teased by the siblings. I, I shouldn't see that much anyway because I'm, I'm old enough to have been living on my own for a while now. It's a perfect crime. I have no idea what accent that was. I uh, I just jumped into doing a voice and then uh, thought halfway into it. I should, it should probably be somewhat New York-based. And then, eh, I don't know if that worked out or not, but I liked it. Uh, also, the, uh, as the forensics timeline uh, came together, seemed more realistic that the murders had happened early in the morning, for one thing. Uh, the family had still been wearing their pajamas, so highly unlikely to have happened after Butch went to work, as he claimed, uh, placing Butch at home at the time of the homicides. And again, what a fucking moron. Right? Why would you make these claims, but then they're all dead in their pajamas? That makes no sense. Just, you know, uh, why are they wearing their pajamas, officer? Uh, well, you know, because it's, it's Wednesday. Everybody knows that Wednesdays, a, a family stay at home from work and school and, and have a pajama party these days. You're, you're telling me that your entire family, except for you, always stay at home on Wednesday for a pajama party. What I'm, what I'm saying is, did, did, did you guys bring in that mob guy yet? The murder dude who definitely did it? Did, can we talk about him now? Can we maybe talk about him? Less about the pajamas, more about him. Uh, when police started questioning Butch about the gun in the pajamas, uh, he started changing his story. First, he said that Fellini had appeared at the house early that morning, put a revolver to his head. Then he said Fellini and an accomplice uh, dragged Butch from room to room as they murdered his family. And then as the story unraveled, police got him to confess what really happened. And he said he did it. He said, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. So why did he do it? DeFeo's never given a consistent story as to why he murdered his family. Never a real good reason. Uh, the most likely motive is greed. Uh, apparently shortly after the murders, he asked a detective uh, what he needed to do to collect his father's life insurance policy. And, and again, man, what a real genius, this guy. The investigating homicide police officer. That, that's who you're going to ask. About about the insurance policy, just yeah yeah yeah. No, I'm really shaking up. I'm really shaking up, officer. What, the whole family just got killed. Are you kidding me? I, I will for sh- I will for sure. I will for sure cry about this later. But for now, I, for now, I got a question for you. How do I get my dad's life insurance money? You know, it might be nice. As, you know, it might be nice to take my mind off the brutal deaths of my entire family. Maybe do a little shopping. You know what I'm saying? You know, maybe get some surfing turf. It's convertible. Take a lady friend on a nice vacation to Bermuda or some shit. I, I just help grieve or whatever. You know. 
uh, in a 1986 interview uh, for Newsday, DeFeo claimed his sister Don killed her father, and then their distraught mother killed all of his siblings before he killed his mother. Uh, all right. Uh, he stated that he took the blame because he was afraid to say anything negative about his mother to her father, Michael Brigante Sr., and his father's uncle out of fear that they would kill him. His father's uncle was Pete DeFeo, a capo in the Genovese crime family. You know, the Iceman. Uh, Richard Kuklinski, former Time Suck, was a hitman for the Genovese crime family at the time, at the same time this happened. So, you know, maybe the Iceman did it. Huh? How about that angle? The Iceman, the real horror of Amityville. I mean, I'm, I'm the only one throwing out that premise, so it's uh, probably, probably not that. Uh, 1990, Butch filed an appeal asserting that his sister Don and an unknown assailant who fled the house before he could get a good look at him killed their parents, and Don subsequently killed their siblings. He said the only person he killed was Don. And then it was by accident as they struggled over the rifle. He also asserted he was married to a woman named Geraldine that apparently no one knew about and that her brother was with him at the time of the murders and that, but that her brother wouldn't be able to make it to court. Dang it. He just, he was there. He can give an alibi. He just can't make it ever. You know, just, yeah, no, yeah. There's this, there's totally this other, another guy with me. There's this Richie. There's this guy, Richie. It's uh, my wife. Um, the wife no one knows about the Geraldine's brother. And he can tell you all about it. But unfortunately, he can't make it down to the courtroom. He's he's busy for the next uh, quite. He's busy for the next rest of his life. Great guy, great great guy, great fella. Wants to help, but busy until about two thousand. Uh, you know, thirty thirty five. About two thousand forty. Guy knows how to fill up a date planner. I tell you. I tell you what. So how about you accept his note that I have here? I know it looks similar to my handwriting, but I promise you, it's Richie's. Richie and I have the same handwriting. He said he saw Don do it. Uh, he's, he misspells like I do. And I know it's, it's Dawn, it's D-O-N. That's, I'm not sure if that's a woman's name, but you know what I mean. That's my sister. Well, how, let me out of here. How about you let me out of here? Dude is just a jackass. Completely full of shit. Just con- constantly throwing out preposterous lies. I think he did it for the insurance money because of his uh, previous history. He was a troubled kid, fought with his parents at home, uh, with kids at school to the point that the family took him to see a psychiatrist in his teens. Stopped going uh, to, uh, to the psychiatrist. His behavior got worse. Started using heroin and LSD. Interesting combo. Uh, started using those in high school. Got expelled at the age of 17 for violent outbursts in school. When he was 18, he was given a job at his grandpa's car dealership and given a weekly stipend from his dad. Classic enabling. Classic bratty rich kid stuff. You know, if you can't get your juvenile delinquent kid to address his problems with therapy, just throw money at him. Like that ever works. Like that has ever helped a problem child. You know, just, you know, our son was a real asshole until we gave him a cushy job he didn't have to earn the family business and a, and a weekly allowance, even though he, he's a grown fucking man. And even though he refuses to go to counseling or, or even get his GED. And now, uh, years later, after consistently rewarding him for, for shitty behavior, after consistently positively reinforcing, uh, you know, zero effort, uh, and or his negative actions, he's a real peach. I gotta tell you, <laughs> yeah, real joy to be around. Uh, everyone loves Butch. No, he's a great guy. Great guy. Everyone respects him. Uh, I remember this brother-in-law of an ex-girlfriend of mine whose family also coincidentally owned a bunch of car dealerships. Uh, his family bought him a house. Yeah, bought him his house. Like, just straight up bought it. Bought it for him. A fucking house. Uh, bought him a big truck in his early 20s. Like, brand new. Fully loaded. Bought him a nice-ass boat. Gave him a cushy job. You know, at the dealership. Like, some kind of middle management. Just skipped right to, like, middle management that he sometimes kind of showed up for. Uh, he had a trust fund. Like the grandparents had money, uh, knew he had a bunch of money coming, whether he worked for it or not, and he was such a piece of shit. Just, ugh, just one of those people where you're just like, ugh, after five minutes, like, why? Why are you around? Complain about everything, always complaining, even though he had the least to complain about of anyone I knew. I think it bothered him also that he knew that no one respected him because, you know, he didn't work for anything. 
you know, and, and it's not like his family forced him, you know, uh, to not strike out on his own either. He could have, he could have cut the cord, could have made his own way, but you know, he just, he wanted to sit back and take and complain. Ah, guess he and Butch would have just gotten along great. Uh, Butch's family kept enabling him, even after he allegedly pulled a shotgun on his dad once in an argument, pulled the trigger, uh, and the gun jammed. Unfortunately for the family, if it wouldn't have uh, jammed, you know, he would have just gone to jail for murdering his father. I say he would have just, like, is that, yeah, no biggie. But, you know, he would have just gone to jail for, you know, something little, like jaywalking or killing his dad. No, he would have gone for murdering his dad instead of killing everyone. So mathematically, quite a bit better. Uh, months before his killing, uh, before killing his family, uh, Butch was irritated by what he felt was a meager salary for a fucking job he was given. Uh, and he hatched a plan to steal money from his grandpa's car dealership. A dealership his father worked at as well, uh, by the way, in late October, a month before the murders, the dealership entrusted Butch with the responsibility of depositing more than $20,000 to the bank. Butch planned a mock robbery with a friend, agreeing to split the money evenly with his accomplice. What a piece of shit. Planned a mock robbery of his own grandfather's car dealership, the guy who'd been, had given him a job. Uh, the plan went off without a hitch until police came to the dealership to question Butch. Instead of calmly answering their questions, Butch exploded into rage. When police, suspicious that Butch was lying, asked him to come uh, into the station to check out some mugshots of possible suspects, he refused. And, and when his dad, Ronald Sr., began to suspect that his son had committed the robbery and questioned him about his lack of cooperation with police, Butch threatened to kill his father. So, you know, old Butchie Poo, just a great guy. Just a, just a joy to be around. Uh, he even threatened to kill the judge and, and his own attorney at his trial. And, uh, and Butch is still a piece of shit, if you're curious. You know, I said he's, you know, he's 66 years old and still an unrepentant asshole in prison. Years after the murders, after his appeals had all ran out, he said his family uh, looked down on him for his drug use, that he didn't like him, that they were a bunch of assholes you know, who didn't respect him, and then he'd do it all over again. He'd gladly pull that trigger, you know, all over again. So you know what? Uh, fuck Butch DeFeo. I uh, hope prison life is particularly brutal for him in his final years. I hope he ends up with the nurse that has to wipe his ass, and she uses nothing but sandpaper and fire. (laughs) Okay, however, despite feeling uh, pretty damn confident that Bush did it, the crime scene is uh, still puzzling. How did Bush shoot six people in four different rooms without waking any of them up? Like, uh, how how did that happen? The, The parents had each been shot twice. You know, the siblings each got shot once. Eight total shots. How did, how did zero neighbors hear these rifle blasts? I've seen crime scene photos, and they're all laying in their beds. Uh, Ken Graguski, the former Amityville police chief, was uh, one of the first people on the scene, first law, law enforcement professionals. To this day, he finds it hard to believe DeFeo could have committed the shootings without any members of his family waking up, saying, why someone wasn't able to get out of that house is beyond belief. Dr. Howard Edelman, deputy chief medical, medical examiner of Suffolk County, was present at the crime scene personally conducted the autopsies on the DeFeo family, he testified at the trial that he felt it was impossible one person could have committed the crimes, saying, even if they were sleeping, the report of the weapon that was used is supposed to be so loud that it would have, so to speak, awakened the dead. That it would have, so to speak, awakened the dead, he said. And and, and neither had, uh, and he said, also said that none of the victims had been drugged. He said, we did extensive toxicology, not only on the blood and urine, but on all the organs that we removed, and it turned up zero that there wasn't anything in their body, uh, all face down in their beds, no signs of struggle with any of them, no drugs in their system. If you're the final victim, how do you sleep through seven different rifle shots spread out over, uh, they said it took about 15 minutes total. You know, while the 35 Marlin isn't the loudest rifles, it's also not the quietest one, way louder than like a 22 rifle, for example. I've never personally shot a 35 Marlin, but I've shot several 22 rifles and a 30 6 and a 270, and, and none of them are super quiet. I mean, a 22 is pretty quiet, but I couldn't sleep through it if it was being shot seven fucking times in the house. 
<laughs> sure, shit wouldn't sleep through a 35 Marlin. I watched a, I watched being shot on some YouTube videos, and it, you know, had some decent pop. I wouldn't, I would sleep through one of those shots. So while Butch is for sure a piece of shit, the crime scene still doesn't make sense. Some allege that other killers had to be involved, but that still doesn't explain the lack of struggle and the position of all the bodies. Uh, one explanation for the strange crime scene is a YouTube video called Amityville Horror, The Night the Government Murdered the DeFeos, published in 2012 by YouTube channel, or, you, you know, YouTube public user, High Tech Harassment, and High Tech Harassment is definitely an idiot of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Okay, so this is an 8 minute and 13 second video that doesn't actually feature much video footage. A few crime scene photos, a uh, few seconds of one video uh, spliced into a slideshow. Mostly just a lot of on-screen text uh, scored with creepy music. But So now let's go through it. This is going to be fun. We're going to go through all of it. Uh, it starts off with visit www.hightechharassment.com and learn how the government did it. And after when I finished this, uh, I did not visit that website because I, I don't need to know. I don't need any more high-tech harassment in my life. Okay. But as far as the video goes, you know, he starts off, set up the premise, plug the website, solid opening intro, nothing weird so far, you know, other than claiming that the government killed a random Long Island family, that is. Uh, then it says the information can only be, this, this information can only be presented as fiction. Uh, or, or what? Or, or the government will kill you? That's kind of a weird turn. You just said the government did it, and now immediately after you're saying, but, but kind of, but it's fiction. But I, but, I, but I have to say it's fiction. All right, Mr. Mysterious. Uh, and then it's six members of the DeFeo family murdered in their sleep by the oldest son, and no one can provide a rational explanation of how he did it. Okay, okay, solid again. I agree. It does defy reason. Amityville is hiding a terrible secret. Uh, really? The whole town. The whole, all of Amityville. The whole town's hiding a secret. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I, a family can't keep a secret for long, let alone an entire town. It's, it's, you know, it's too much high-tech harassment. Come on, it's too much. This is what Amityville doesn't want you to know. Mr. DeFeo, Big Ronnie, and his oldest son, Butch, were heavily involved in organized crime. Okay. All right, all right. I don't know why Amityville wouldn't want me to know that, but I'm, but I'm open to them being in crime, you know? There are references all over the web that, you know, they may have been mixed up, at least casually, with some organized crime. I'll, I'll entertain that. You know, go, go on. Big Ronnie was running drugs into Amityville with his boat docked right behind the house. Okay, I'll buy that too, as being possible. Big R's running drugs, fine. People run drugs. That's the thing that happens. Big Ronnie and Butch were out of control, and their neighbors and powerful people in Amityville feared them. Uh, all right, still not too crazy. You know, people are afraid of, you know, people that run drugs. Again, that's a, that's a thing. Big Ronnie and Butch would often threaten their neighbors by telling them that they would bring in the mob to murder the neighbors' families if they interfered with the DeFeo family operation. Huh. I, I, w I would think that would come up in the police investigation. But you know what? You know what? Mafia types are known to threaten people. Still somewhat reasonable. Not too outrageous. One direct neighbor of the DeFeos was a powerful and prominent family in Amityville named the Englands. The England family used their influence to bring in outside help to deal with the DeFeo menace. The outside help was the government mafia. Uh, I'm, wait, wait. I'm sorry. What, what was that last name? The government mafia? Huh. Uh, hadn't heard of them before. Also, I googled Amityville, England family, nothing. Uh, I tried the Englands of Amityville, nada. Uh, I looked through a list of no no, uh, notable people on Amityville's Wikipedia page, zilch. Mike James, former NBA point guard, he's on the list. Alec Baldwin, uh, is on the list, being from Amityville, the Alec Baldwin. Uh, he was only there as a baby, though. 
the, you know, the other three Baldwin boys would be born in uh, Massapequa, New York, you know, nearby, uh, where they moved shortly after he's born. Amityville is a town of less than 10,000 people. Uh, you'd think at least one of the Englands would make the list, you know? I, maybe, I guess they're as secret as they are powerful. And who the hell are the government mafia? You Google uh, government mafia, and just a message flashes on screen that just says, what the fuck is wrong with you? It's nonsense, you dumb shit. Well, that doesn't happen, but really nothing, nothing comes up. High-tech harassment, though. Uh, uh, you know, go on, let's see where this leads. The government began covert domestic operations against people involved in organized crime beginning in the late 1960s. Yeah, says who? You know, if you would have said CIA, I might buy it. But it's, it's this government mafia nonsense that's really kind of throwing me, all right? It's, it's, it seems like, I don't know you, seems like you're making all this shit up. The government mafia is equipped with classified technology that can electronically see and hear through walls. Whoa, What? Okay, now we're really starting to jump the shark, okay? See through and hear through walls. Where, where did you hear that? Please, any source. The government mafia has also classified technology that can target and incapacitate or kill people through walls. What the fuck are you talking? What, what, come on now. Now you've definitely jumped the shark. Classified technology to kill people through walls, but have the walls still be intact. Where, where are you getting any of this? The government mafia moved into the England house, directly neighboring the DeFeo's residence, and placed the DeFeo's under covert surveillance. After months of surveillance, the government mafia decided to use classified lethal weapon technology to murder six members of the DeFeo family through the walls of their home. On November 13, 1974, six members of the DeFeo family were murdered while they slept in their beds. One by one, a beam of electricity fired from a lethal-directed energy weapon into the chest area of each DeFeo family member effectively killing them through the walls of their home. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, hold on, hold on. If the government had a, had an energy beam that could kill people through walls without destroying the walls, why would they wait for months? Why would they crash next door? They have to boot somebody, a family out of their house or live with them for months? Why, I don't know, why not just, you know, park a van? out in front for like five, 10 minutes in the middle of the night and just, you know, energy beam the shit out of that poor family. Get it over with. It's not like shooting extra energy beams going to hurt the house. It doesn't hurt walls, remember? High-tech harassment. This is making less sense by the second. Minutes after the murders, a strike team enters the DeFeo house. Each of the DeFeo family members' lifeless bodies are repositioned in their beds and then shot with Butch's rifle. Butch was incapacitated through the walls of his home so he could be left alive to become the patsy and take the fall for the murders. Man, so many holes in this theory, and I'm not even talking about the ones through the bodies of the DeFeo family. Hey-oh! Sorry about that. Just uh, laid out that way. Uh, if after the energy beam, you're, <laughs> if after the energy beam, like you're going you're gonna to shoot everybody with what, like, why shoot them in that weird face-down arrangement? Like, like, like hold on, let me get, you, you've shot everybody with energy beams. But then instead of like making it look like a real crime scene of like bodies strewn out in different positions and people trying to escape or defend themselves, you just – you lay them face down in their beds and have like the one weird bullet hole through most of their backs. Why, why, you've had months to put this – you've been holed up in the England house for months with your other secret energy beam coworkers. You'd think they would be able to you know, put a little better plan together. Just, all right, team, it's the moment we've all been waiting for. We've, we've killed the DeFales except for Butch with the energy beam. 
Uh, not sure why we couldn't have done that on night one, but you know what? Uh, whatever. That's That comes from up top. That's what the big boss wanted. He wanted us to watch him for a few months first. I don't make those decisions. Now, let's get in. Let's make this look like Butch did it all. Let's make it look like everyone was sleeping in the exact same face-down position, like families often do, and that no one was awoken by the sounds of other family members being shot. Let's make it look very natural. And then it gets even weirder. As payment for ridding Amityville of the DeFeos, the town of Amityville would lure an unsuspecting family to the former DeFeo residence. What? What? So the town of almost 10,000 people is just having a meeting. We're like, all right, everybody, thanks for, thanks for showing up at the Amityville meeting. Uh, good news is the government mafia used the energy beam to, read us, uh, to rid us of the DeFeos. Uh, bad news is that we have to pay them back. Uh, and we have to do that by luring an unsuspecting family to the DeFeo residence so they can experiment uh, more with some energy weapons. And then one guy was probably just like, well, why, why do we have to lure them? Why can't we just drop the price of the house and have just someone buy it? You know, like a, like a regular thing people do. Because lure is cooler, Mr. Baldwin. Now shut the fuck up and take your family to Massapequa. And then high-tech harassment says, uh, I told you we're going to walk through this whole thing. A family with the last name of Lutz would purchase the DeFeo residence. The government mafia would use classified sonic harassment technology against the Lutz family to trick them into believing they were, li- <laughs> they were living in a haunted house. The Lutz family, believing a supernatural force inhabited their home, decides to abandon their new home after only 20 days. What, what is the point of that? Unreal. Sonic harassment technology. Why would, why would anyone develop that? Mr. President, we finished the secret killer energy beam that can shoot through walls. Excellent. But what about my sonic harassment beam that can make people, you know, very uncomfortable or believe weird things or irritated and stuff? Uh, Mr. President, I'm not sure I understand why we would also need... I don't need you to understand, random weapon scientist person. I need you to get my goddamn harassment beam developed. And then the video goes into a bunch of pictures uh, of the murder scene, describing the official report of of each uh, being killed by a shot or two shots in the back, each laying in the bed. And then there's like this video of someone shooting a 35 Marlin rifle to show how loud it is. And then on the screen it says... This is a military-directed energy weapon that fires an invisible beam of energy that can harass, incapacitate, or murder a person through the walls of their house. And the image that follows made me laugh so hard. It's, it's like this Discovery Channel footage of soldiers standing behind some sort of cannon with the most low-budget CGI energy wave shooting out of it just added in post. It's so bad. It's like early you know, Nintendo graphics bad. Worse than that, it's Atari. It's Atari graphics. And then, and then it talks about how these directed energy weapons are the ultimate weapons, and then it says, the following illustration shows how a directed energy weapon located inside a house can be used to attack a person inside a neighboring house. And I would kind of expect some kind of equations or something, make it look fancy at least. No, it's a super shitty drawing of two houses, but like the kind you can do in like two minutes, where you, know, you just draw a triangle for the roof, and you set that on top of a rectangle for the house. Like I was doing those when I was a little kid. And you just have a horizontal line bisecting the rectangle, you know, to divide it into downstairs and upstairs. And then a couple little, you know, vertical lines to divide it into a few rooms. And then they just have like a a shitty looking parallelogram that's supposed to be the energy gun and a straight blue line going through the wall of the first house from downstairs to up the second floor of the other house going through that wall. And then quickly like ending into like the, the outline of a bed. And and that's it. That's, that's, that's exhibit a, that's the big illustration. An eight-year-old could have drawn that whole thing and, and drawn it better in a few minutes tops. 
And then it says, these directed energy weapons create no physical evidence of their use. No marks on the human body or damage to the structure of the house will result after an attack. And then, what is the Amityville saga really about? The town of Amityville feared the DeFeo family and offered them to the government mafia to be used as guinea pigs for testing classified lethal directed energy weapons. The Lutz family was in the wrong place at the wrong time, only to become guinea pigs for testing classified non-lethal weapons, and other harassment technology. This is one of the most, and that's it, and this is this is one of the most wonderfully specific, insane theories I've come across. Like, for someone to build this video, to think this out, it's such focused and detailed madness. It's, it's a work of insane art. And, and to the internet's credit, most people just made fun of it in the comments. Uh, almost everyone. But there's, but there's a YouTuber. There's Scott Tomlinson, the one man who watched this and agreed with high-tech harassment, saying, if you blind morons, all caps, back to lowercase, don't think that the U.S. government has the technology and the balls to do something like this, dot, dot, dot. You are all blind, dot, dot, dot. Very blind, comma, go back to sleep, period. I am blind, Scott. I am blinded by your utter and complete fucking gobbledygook. Blinded by the flapdoodle, the poppycock, the hokum, the fooey. The Tommy Rot Malarkey of the idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Okay, so what do we know uh, so far about Amityville? We know that the murder crime scene at Amityville was very peculiar. We know that Butch DeFeo is a lying degenerate who, at the very least, was heavily involved in killing his entire family. Uh, we know that, you know, one of the many reasons DeFeo gave for killing his family in court was he heard voices in the house. We know a psychiatrist ruled he was not, in fact, delusional. But what went on? in the property before the DeFeos lived there. Did others die mysteriously in that house? I listened to the audiobook of the Amityville Horror, and author Jay Anson states that every family that ever lived there had some horrific, uh, something horrific happened there, there was other killings that occurred inside the house. Well, that doesn't seem to be true. I had I had a hell of a time finding a detailed history of the house. Uh, not sure a non-sensationalized one exists. Do not buy uh, Jay Anson's claims there at all. Uh, I did find some info on the website, theamityvillemurders.com, uh, which, which has no footnotes, so... You know, I don't know exactly where they got their info, but let's assume they did find some stuff out. Uh, and I do think they're probably probably fairly correct because it's, it's not craziness. It's pretty just mundane stuff. You know, they say a man uh, who lived in the neighborhood for decades completely refutes Hanson's claim about the past as he knew several families who lived there before the DeFeos. Nothing happened to him. Nothing weird. Nothing horrible uh, has happened to anyone since the Lutz has moved out either. And there's quite a few articles about that. Uh, you know, Jay Hanson claimed that the home was built on some sort of Indian burial ground slash place where the tribes would send like troubled tribe members, mentally ill members to maybe to die alone. And that, that appears to be bullshit. Uh, local tribes completely refute this. Mr. Anson also claimed that a witch named John Ketchum lived on the property in the 1600s. That's also in the movie. Uh, I guess, which makes sense. It was based on the book. Genealogy records, uh, don't show anyone by that name ever living in that area at the time. And after the Salem witch trial episode, you know, not really convinced that Puritan witches were people who dabbled in witchcraft anyway. Right. Uh, until the beginning of the 20th century, the property was part of some farmland, and then a home was built in 1925. John and Catherine uh, Mo, uh, Monahan lived there until he died peacefully. Their daughter then lived there until 1960. Uh, when a John and Mary Riley bought the house, lived there until they divorced in 1965. And then the DeFeos bought it and lived there until the government mafia secret energy beamed them, uh, you know, to death in, in 1974. Uh, so other than the DeFeo murders and the alleged haunting of the uh, Lutzes that followed, nothing sinister has gone on in that house. 
Uh, March 18th, uh, 1977, Jim and Barbara Cromarty purchased the home from the from the bank after the Lutzes left. They lived there happily until 1987. They sold the home, never reporting anything supernatural. Another couple, Peter and Jeannie uh, O'Neill, uh, lived there, in, or Jeanne, excuse, eh, Jeannie, I think, until 1977, selling the home to help pay for the kids' college tuition. A man named Brian Wilson lived there until 2010. David and Caroline uh, D'Antonio bought the house. And then they sold it to some other assholes last year, and nothing notable has occurred. The house sold for around $850,000, if you're curious. However, if you are a paranormal believer, there could be an explanation for why nothing happened after the Lutzes moved out. So, so hear this. Check this out. Two months after the Lutzes uh, moved out, reporter Laura Didio assembled a group of psychic researchers to evaluate the family's claims. The investigator spent a night in the house, walking from room to room, trying to pick up ghostly vibrations. It was like a psychic slumber party. Uh, Didio remembers. One of the researchers, Lorraine Warren, remembers an overwhelming feeling of horrible depression in the house. Uh, you may recognize the name Lorraine Warren if you're a horror movie fan. She and her husband, Ed, were paranormal investigators, self-described demonologists, uh, whose lives would inspire the Conjuring movie franchise. You know, uh, supposedly their home in Rhode Island was haunted before, and then they would investigate numerous other hauntings afterwards, such as Amityville and uh, Annabelle, you know, the supposedly haunted doll that inspired another horror movie franchise. Uh, the paranormal team took a series of time-lapse photos of the upstairs landing. None of the photographs showed anything out of the ordinary except one, uh, which had what Didio describes as the face of what appeared to be a little boy peering out from one of the bedrooms. And then this team, in addition to investigating the paranormal activity, also exercised the home itself. So if you believe in the power of exorcism, you know, that could explain why nothing happened to future residents, right? Maybe they got the demons out of there. And maybe nothing happened to previous residents because the murders are what set the horrors in motion for the Lutz family. Or perhaps some evil spirit settled into the house shortly before the murders happened. Uh, perhaps Bush DeFeo himself brought him in the house. You know, maybe he was possessed, brought some entity in. And maybe that's all bullshit. I don't know. It's all up for interpretation, I guess. Now, if you want to know more about this team, there's a documentary called My Amityville Horror. It's Daniel Lutz, one of the kids who was in the home after the murders, talking about what he saw nearly 40 years later. Interesting stuff. Could Daniel be lying about claiming to see the various paranormal stuff he talks about in the movie? Yeah, sure. He's a little odd. You know, but it's his story. None of us were there. And you can either believe him or not. Now, before we tell uh, the tale of what the Lutzes claim happened to, to them, let's let's get a few more critiques out of the way, such as the one that the Lutzes uh, conspired with their defense attorney for Butch DeFeo to make up the story to profit from it. Uh, so, so, yeah, the, the defense attorney of Butch DeFeo, to, sorry, to make up the story to profit from it. So this, this story, this, this angle is that Butch DeFeo and his lawyer, William Weber, claimed that uh, uh, Weber met with the Lutzes, who were in a lot of financial trouble, and, and he met with them to write a book based on the haunting and, and or a haunting and made the whole thing up. You know, the Amityville story does take place shortly after The Exorcist. You know, that movie, The Exorcist came out in 1973 and was a record smashing box office success. You know, it was a cultural phenomena. So, you know, demons possessing people in modern America and Catholic priests having to exorcise those demons are on people's brains. It's in the zeitgeist. You know, you have to acknowledge that. It's for Butch and William, though. Why should we believe the words of a family killer and a known liar? And the lying family killer's lawyer, you know, over the, over this Lutz family. And why would the attorney for Butch DeFeo uh, meet up with the Lutzes anyway? That that makes no sense to me. Just hello, uh, can I come in? Uh, who am I? Uh, I'm the defense attorney uh, for the guy who killed his family in this very house a year or so ago. And uh, I was just thinking I could come in. We could have some drinks. We could make up a ghost story. Uh, we could try and get it made into a book. And you know, we could make a shitload of money. <laughs> Sound good? That seems absolutely preposterous to me. William claimed he wanted to interview the Lutzes after they moved out because he had heard that they heard voices while in the house but didn't hear them any longer after they left. He thought he could use that information to maybe file another appeal for Butch to fail. 
And then after talking about it with the family and, you know, and the family telling them nothing actually happened to them, then they kind of over drinks, hatch this idea to pretend the house was haunted to profit from it. And I just don't fucking buy it. You know, wh- why would the Lutz family claim to everyone else that, you know, they've been attacked by evil spirits and then suddenly tell this lawyer that they made it up? And, and I, I don't know. Why would they make it up with him? Like, he, he seems like a huge putz, you know? Hearing voices was one of Butch's many, many excuses for the murders, and the court had already shut that defense down. You know, it just seems weird that you would show up uh, to talk to the DeFeos about helping your client and then leave conspiring to lie about a haunting to sell a book that none of you have the ability to write and none of you know is going to be successful. You know, a book was written about the ordeal, obviously, and I've already established it was a huge success, but you can't know that in advance. You know, if it was that easy to make a bunch of money, if you could just make up a story about a, a haunted house, you know, people would be doing it fucking left and right. And maybe they are doing it a lot, but it doesn't become popular very often. Yeah, so they couldn't have known that it would just become this wild, wildly profitable cultural phenomenon. So I don't buy that angle. Uh, the logic behind the Lutz is making up the story for profit uh, is it, tough for me, too, because, you know, they walked away from a house that they had just bought. So they lost a lot of money on that. You know, they, they fucking destroyed their credit. They walked away from most of their possessions. They left most of their possessions in the house, really. And they did all of that just on a chance that maybe they'd make a bunch of money later. Ah, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy that. Um, they don't have like a history of running cons before then or anything, you know, that just, that just seems very, very unlikely to me, you know, a family of five, they got kids too. Yeah. Just walking away and putting themselves in that kind of position to maybe make money. Nah. And then there's the matter of the priest, the priest involved in all this, this priest who claimed to hear a voice famously telling him to get out. That was father, uh, Ralph Picar- uh, Pecoraro. Now, in the book, uh, in the original 1979 film, The Amityville Horror, there is a priest. Uh, he's probably in the remakes, too. I haven't seen those. It's Father Mancuso in the films and in the book. Uh, Father uh, Pecoraro in real life, I guess, supposedly. He comes from. Uh, he comes over to cleanse the house, you know, hears voices, then gets strangely ill, fears for the lives and souls of the Lutz family, or does he? You know, Newsday, a Long Island newspaper, interviewed uh, Picaro, Pecoraro. I want to I cut that one syllable out of his name. After the story broke and, and Father Mancuso, uh, who Newsday said was, you know, Ralph uh, J. Pecoraro, told the uh, newspaper that he had known Kathy during her first marriage and, and, and had instructed George a Methodist since, since converted to Catholicism before their marriage. But he says he had never been near the house at 112 Ocean Avenue and had referred the couple to a local parish priest to whom they never went. He also denied that his own quarters at Rockville Center were overwhelmed by the smell of excrement, supposedly a satanic sign and claim made in the book, added that his colleagues uh, you know, made that a, in, into a joke. Uh, George Lutz responded to this in a Washington Post article in 1979, saying, People say all sorts of things about the priest, that he's no longer a priest, now he's a rabbi, that he's in Europe, that he was excommunicated, but he never backed down. Kathy Lutz added that he remains that the family remains very much in touch with uh, this priest, and uh, and George asked whether he recognizes the name Pecoraro. Said Newsday says a lot of things. As far as we're concerned, he's Father Mancuso. There were a number of priests involved who will never be told about. Also a rabbi. All right. So the Lutz say one thing and the priest says another. You know, you might think like, why would this priest lie? Well, you know, you know, why why would the Catholic Church cover this up? Well, the Catholic Church and priests do have a little history of covering shit up. Let's acknowledge that. You know, if they can cover up a worldwide pedophile scandal for, for centuries, you know, they can they can sweep a little haunting under the rug if they if they have some random motive that we don't understand. So it's a it's a he said he said pre said, you know, kind of situation here. All right. So final conclusions, you know, kind of before the story. Uh, and there's a lot of other people who claim the Lutz's lies, local residents and neighbors in Long Island being among them. But these are the same residents and neighbors who somehow didn't hear eight rifle shots in the home in the middle of the night. You know, there are discrepancies in the supposedly true book and the supposedly true movies. 
However, none of that explains the super, super weird position of the DeFeo corpses, does it? I mean, that still creeps me out every time I think about it. Can't get those crime scene photos out of my head. And then there's this. In June 1979, George and Kathy Lutz took a polygraph test relating to their experiences in the Amityville house. The polygraph tests were performed by Chris Gugas, Michael Rice, who at the time were reportedly among the top five polygraph administrators uh, in America. The results, in Mr. Rice's opinion, did not indicate lying. Now, polygraph tests are not 100% reliable. There's no magic truth serum out there. But in this case, the results indicate that there is a very, very, very good chance that George and Kathy Lutz at least believe they saw what they claimed to have seen there. And the Lutz kids, at least those who've come forward recently, still believe. One of the Lutz children, Christopher, who would move to Phoenix and change his uh, last name to his birth father's name, uh, Quartino, revealed to the Phoenix New Times in 2011 that he remains convinced that an evil presence stalked the family in the Amityville house. He believes his stepfather, George Lutz, invited demonic forces into the home through his dabbling in the occult, another rumor that floats around online. And when you watch the My Amityville Horror, uh, it's a documentary with Daniel Lutz. Daniel Lutz clearly seems to still believe his family was attacked by demonic forces. So now you've heard the bulk of the main arguments against the Lutz's story. You've heard the strange circumstances that can be explained surrounding the story. So now let's suck into a good old-fashioned ghost story, you know? Believe it or don't. This is one family's story, and if you're a skeptic, I just encourage you to allow your mind to go to that place of, what if this did happen? You know, what if they didn't make this up? How terrifying would it be to be terrorized in the very place you're supposed to feel the most safe? You know, your own home. Uh, let us hit some of the highlights of this story and march to the 28-day time suck timeline of the Amityville Horror. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Day one, George and Kathy Lutz move into their new home at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island, New York, with Kathy's three kids from a previous marriage, Daniel 9, Christopher 7, and Melissa, a.k.a. Missy 5, and the family dog, Bojangles! Three-legged, one-eyed pit bull, ready to take on some house-possessing demons and send them back to hell. Ready to punch their dark overlord, Lucifina, right in her devil titties. Ready to speed bag those satanic memories and protect those putzlutzes. No. Of course, the dog was not Bojangles. It was a black lab named Harry. They did have a dog. And Harry moved to Amityville with his family on December 18th, 1975. They moved into a three-story, five-bedroom Dutch colonial home on a 50-foot by 237-foot lot with a heated swimming pool and a boathouse near the end of the Amityville River leading to South Oyster Bay. And they got it for a bargain price of $80,000, less than half of what its market value was. I'd been vacant for just over a year, and I got to say, after hearing that, I might take a chance as well. That's, that's, a, that's a hell of a place. Uh, it was cold the day they moved in. They arrived about 1 p.m. Five of George's employees were there to help them unload their possessions from a moving truck. He had a land surveyor business. And, and George quickly got the fireplace working and, and, and stoked it with some wood. And, uh, getting, you know, getting them all warmed up. George and Kathy knew of the DeFeo murders. Knew that's why they'd gotten a deal in the house. But claimed not to care. Claimed not to be superstitious people. Local priest, uh, Father Frank Mancuso, uh, came over a short time later to cleanse the home, you know, according to the Lutzes, but I, I gotta stop saying that. Uh, he knew, of course, that the DeFeo, uh, of the DeFeo murders. Uh, when he entered the home and flicked, uh, you know, the first sprinkles of holy water to cleanse the home, he heard a menacing masculine voice speak to him from the home with terrifying clarity, saying, Get out! The command came from behind him, but when he twirled around, nothing was there. He then finished his cleansing and left, not telling the Lutzes what he'd hurt. I don't know. Maybe he thought he was just cracking up a bit. Uh, later that day, when he returned to his rectory, Father Mancuso noticed dark circles that had suddenly formed under his eyes, and he felt ill. 
On the way home from his rectory that night, Father Mancuso said his car malfunctioned and steered itself off the road onto the shoulder. Shortly after that, the hood suddenly flew open and smashed against the windshield, and the right door also flew open. The engine died. Had to have another priest uh, drive him home. Back at the Amityville house, Harry the dog had tried jumping over a fence, nearly hanged himself. Yeah, Harry's all right, but he's no Bojangles. Bojangles wouldn't have done that. He would have, he would have, known how long his leash was. He would have figured out how to get out of it. Uh, but anyways, uh, George raced over, saved a choking dog, readjusted the leash so he couldn't reach the fence again. Day two, December nineteenth, first night in the Amityville house. George sits up in the middle of the night after hearing a knock at the door. It's three fifteen a.m. in the morning. He hears more knocks but can't tell where it's coming from. Finally, he can tell it's coming from the boathouse. Looking down from the window, he can see a shadowy figure near Harry in his canine compound. Harry starts barking, thinking a cat is bothering Harry. George heads outside, finds the boathouse door ajar. No cat, no other source of the shadows. He locks the boathouse door, goes back to bed. The next day, no matter how much wood George adds to the fire, he just can't feel warm. Day 3. December 20th, 3.15 a.m. George wakes up again. He feels compelled to check the boathouse door again. It's locked. He goes back to bed. For the second day in a row, George doesn't shave or shower, something he always did daily before. The house is still freezing. Day four, December 21st, 3.15 a.m. Same check of the boathouse door for George. That day, both George and Kathy are in terrible moods. George continues not to shower or shave. The kids are beginning to drive him insane. He used to be an extremely patient stepfather. He's snapping easily now. Uh, so So is Kathy. She snapped at the kids. They feel like they're unruly brats suddenly who won't listen. During their fourth night in the house, George and Kathy beat the kids pretty severely with a leather strap and a wooden spoon for cracking a pane of glass in the playroom's half-room window. Neither had ever beaten the kids like this before. Uh, Half-moon window, I think I said half-room, half-moon window. Day 5, December 22nd, same 3.15 a.m. routine for George. The weather plummets outside to 8 degrees. George is still obsessed with the fire, not showering, not shaving, not going to work. Ran a small land surveying company. So, you know, business was slow, but it was still, you know, odd for George not to go into work at all. Uh, Kathy has not left the house at all, very unlike her. And then uh, during this fifth day, Kathy feels some unseen force touch her in the kitchen. Feels like a woman's soft hand resting on top of her own, a mother's touch, both startling and oddly reassuring. Uh, the kids show their mom the upstairs toilet this day. Uh, the inside of the bowl was covered in some black kind of stain, some strange black stain. It looked like it had been painted black all inside the bowl. She couldn't flush the black away, couldn't rub it away, couldn't scrub it away. Uh, Kathy smelled a strange perfume in the bedroom that day as well. Uh, in the master bedroom, the toilet also turned black, and the room was overcome with a powerful rotten stench. Also on day five, the family discovers a large swarm of flies in the sewing room clustered around the window facing the boathouse. Hundreds and fl- of hundreds of flies. They open the window. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm going to keep that in there. Ready? My uh, my water just kicked on in the middle of this ghost stuff. It just scared the shit out of me. <laughs> talking, thinking about all these flies, this window. Then I hear a strange noise above me. Oh, my God. But I had a heart attack. Okay. Getting into this. So they chase out as many of the flies as they can. They open the window, and then they kill the rest. Man. Whew. Man, that really got me. Oh, okay. George uh, still felt cold uh, all the time. No one else in the family seemed to feel the same chill. George continues uh, to chop firewood and add logs to the fire. A neighbor stops by for the first time on day five as well, bringing in a six-pack of beer. Comes in, starts talking to the family. Then he stops suddenly, tells him he brought his beer, and he'd take it with him. Then he abruptly left and was just never seen again. Maybe he's a a weird beer dude ghost. He's a weird, you know, beer guy ghost. What the hell was he up to, and why was he featured in the movie and in the book? What what does that mean? Why did he leave so soon? You know, did they not seem cool to party with? Did they they not seem excited enough about his sweet six-pack? Were they supposed to offer him nose candy? What's going on here? Nothing has to make sense, I guess, when it comes to ghosts. 
Day six, December 23rd, Kathy wakes up in the middle of the night to find George trying to put the front door to the house back on. It had somehow come off in the middle of the night. George explains that the, that the way the door had been busted and come loose, it, it was as, as if someone had been trying to break out of the house, not into it. So they have someone come fix the door that day. He doesn't understand how it broke either. You know, it's a very heavy door. You know, how was it ripped off the hinges and no one was woken up? George is still not showering, shaving, or going to work. He's become obsessed with getting warmer. He's just fucking splitting wood all the time. So, so creepy. Just constantly, just more firewood. Just get the, keep the fire going. Just get, just put some more fire in there, kids. Just put more fire. Put more wood in the fire. Put more fire on the wood. Everything. Everything we can do to get it hotter. Uh, you know, Missy has made an invisible friend in the house, Jody. Says you've been talking to angels around the house, and these angels are talking to her. Despite being uh, two days away from Christmas, Kathy still has not left the house doing any shopping. She doesn't know why, but she doesn't doesn't care. <laughs> doesn't want to leave the house. The boys get into a physical fight that day, which is, I guess was weird for them. They'd never fought like that before. I don't know. You know, maybe the ghost trying to toughen them up a little bit. Thought they were too soft. Uh, crucifix Kathy had hung in the home was found turned upside down. Strange smells continue to plague the home. Day 7, December 24th, Christmas Eve, Father Mancuso has been battling a strange illness since he stepped into the animal Amityville house a week earlier. Has a, has a fever of 104. He's worrying about the family, especially about the sewing room. Something's not right about that room. Something's not right about the house. You know, he still he still thinks uh, there was a voice telling him to get out. He doesn't think it was just his mind. The family sets up a Christmas tree, decorates it uh, with their ornaments. George continues to neglect his job. Father Mancuso calls the family, speaks with George, asks him about the sewing room on the second floor. George tells the priest about the hundreds of houseflies that have been there two days earlier. Father Mancuso tells him to stay out of that room. And then the phone connection turns to static, and I just got chills. I don't even necessarily believe this story, but it creeps me out. So uh, Father Mancuso tries calling him back. Here's the phone ring. George waits for Father Mancuso to call him back, but here's nothing on his end. Weird shit happening in Amityville. Damn meddlesome ghosts. They won't always kill you, but they will spook you. they annoy you. They'll do a bunch of annoying stuff. Strange entities, these ghosts, you know? Just, should we kill the family? No, I have a way scarier idea. Let's let's not let them uh, finish their phone calls and make the, make, make the toilet dirty and put a bunch of uh, flies in the house. That's much scarier than death. Is it? Uh, Kathy's parents... Brother Jimmy come over to the visit, and we're startled by George's appearance. He doesn't look well. And then he just starts openly masturbating in front of the family, in front of everybody, just inside his sweatpants, just doesn't give a shit. Oh, no, wait, that was, uh, wait, that was Monday. That was Monday's episode. That was Chikatilo. Never mind, never mind. Uh, He wasn't doing that, but he did look insane. Uh, George hadn't showered or shaved still. He's not combing his hair. He's going for that hobo chic. Flies came back on day seven. George continues to worry that the boathouse door is unlocked. He's, you know, if he's not obsessed about the fire, he's obsessed about the goddamn boathouse. Tell you what he's not obsessed about at all is hygiene. All right, day eight, December 25th, Christmas Day. George continues to sit up in bed at 3.15 a.m., continues to check uh, the boathouse door like a maniac. This time, once outside, he looks back at the house and sees Missy standing in her bedroom window, looking down at him in the middle of the night, his little girl. Behind her, he sees the clear face of a pig. Yeah, a pig. What the fuck? This detail was in the movie as well. It threw me in the movie, you know? I think I kind of was like half paying attention for a second. All of a sudden, there's a pig in the window. I'm like, what? what? So weird. And it's the kind of thing that makes me think that maybe there really is something to this. Because it's such an odd and specific detail to add to the story. Like, if you're making up a haunted house story, why, why wouldn't you say you saw a demon face behind Missy? You know? Say you saw the face of one of the DeFeo family members that was killed. Uh, you know? Why a pig? Even a goat is scarier than a pig. Even a cat's scarier than a pig. But the pig did have red eyes. So that's scary. There's a red-eyed demon pig. 
So scary and strange. When George sees he runs into the house, runs up to Missy's room where the girl's sound asleep in her bed, sees a rocking chair in her room, slowly rocking back and forth on its own. That would freak me the fuck out. Red eyes in a window from some devil pig. And then you run up there and a chair's moving on its own. All right, everybody get in the car. We're out. We are leaving right, right now. We are out of here forever now. You know, how do you, oh my God, Penny just scared the shit out of me, my dog. I'm getting all worked up over here recording you guys. I saw weird shadows under my desk as I was saying that, and I was about to, to squeal. You about heard me squeal and run, and then I noticed that my dog Penny was just under there. Oh, my own little mini Bojangles. God damn it, Penny scared the shit out of me. Um, all right. I am recording this late at night, by the way. It's probably adding to my spook. I, late at night, I'm facing the wall. I have no idea what's behind me. But uh, but, but when you see that stuff, how do you at least not go to the bank and try to get your money back and move? Something. Try to get out of there. Uh, Father, Father Mancuso is still worrying about the Lutzes. Still can't get his fever to break. Uh, Kathy finally does a little Christmas shopping on Christmas Day. <laughs> you know, right at the, right at the wire. Uh, George continues to obsess over the fire. Not shower. Not shave. Looks super gross. Missy continues to talk about her friend Jody, the pig. Uh, who she reveals to, reveals to her brother Danny is a pig. They're all getting used to this new normal, I guess. Kathy hears Missy talking to Jody in her room that evening. She tells her mom about her pig friend, and uh, Kathy's now starting to worry about her daughter quite a bit. Day 9, December 26th, George continues his strange 3.15 a.m. routine. He also notices his dog Harry getting more and more lethargic. Uh, he used to always wake up when George came outside or when he heard any strange noise at night. Now he seems to be sleeping harder than, than ever, you know, harder and harder each night, sleeping through George loudly, checking the lock on the door. Uh, George gets nauseous this night. He's sick the next morning as well. Diarrhea, all kinds of stomach problems. Kathy's brother, Jimmy, is getting married this day. Uh, who gets married on December December 26th, by the way? The day after Christmas. Yeah, thanks for ruining everyone's holiday break, Dick. You know, we're hoping to stay home, have leftovers, take a nap. You know, relax. Now we got your stupid wedding to go to. Well, why can't you wait until summer and ruin someone's random weekend like a normal person? Uh, Kathy is touched in the kitchen again by some unseen entity. She smells a strange perfume she'd smelled in her bedroom four days earlier. She feels a woman touch her waist. Then the sweet smell becomes heavy and thick, and she tries to pull away from the presence, and the spirit grabs her harder, painfully. She, she, she feels a hand grab her shoulder, and then just like that, it's gone, and she starts to cry. Missy comes in and tells her mom that Jody says you shouldn't cry, and everything will be all right soon. Yeah, don't worry, Mom. My red-eyed demon pig buddy Jody says everything is kosher. Don't even worry about ghosts grabbing you in the kitchen, Mom. Demon pig says it's, it's normal. Uh, Jimmy came to pick up his sister, uh, brother-in-law, uh, who'd be his best man, and niece and nephews to take them to the wedding. That's weird too, man. Why, why, are you, why are you having the groom pick up your entire family to take you to his wedding? You have a car? Fucking none of these people understand how weddings work. Uh, Jimmy has $1,500 in cash to pay the caterer that night and his jacket side pocket. And then when they begin to leave, the money's gone. And the money would never be found. And this is a weird detail, kind of like the pig. Like, why would a ghost steal cash? And, and, but, and how is that scary? I feel like I need to add, even if the haunting story is true, uh, George, who was having money problems, uh, you know, I feel like he tried to pass off pilfering 1500 bucks off his brother-in-law and the ghosts. I just don't see in any situation the ghosts have anything to do with that. Just damn these ghosts showing up in their windows with the red demon pig eyes and waking me up every morning at 3.15 a.m. and grabbing my wife in the kitchen and taking that, you know, taking that $1,500 from that jacket I was standing nearby. Fuck ghosts. Day 10, December 27th, in the early morning hours after Jimmy's wedding reception, Kathy and George have sex for the first time since they had moved in despite George not showering or shaving. And then Kathy has a dream that night about the DeFeo mom also having sex in that same room, but not with her husband. Later, she'd learned that Louise DeFeo had an affair in that house. And I'm sure she thought to herself that if George doesn't shower sometime in the next few weeks, I might have to have an affair as well. 
You know, she won't even care what the dude looks like as long as he's clean. Just wants a clean ween. Just wants a clean ween in her life. Uh, that afternoon, Kathy's Aunt Teresa comes over to visit. She'd been a nun at one point, but was now the mother of three kids. Uh, <laughs> so I can't crack myself up with the clean ween thing. All right. She took a little tour of the home, but uh, stopped at the second floor sewing room, saying she wouldn't go in there. Her face turned pale. She backed away from the room. The room was ice cold, much colder than the rest of the house. Teresa also wouldn't go into the children's playroom on the third floor, saying it was a bad place. And then less than 30 minutes after arriving, Aunt Teresa just arrives the fuck on back out of the house. Tells Kathy that something is wrong. You know, boy from down the street named Bobby. Uh, he comes over to play with Danny and Chris that day. Never takes off his coat even. Leaves soon after arriving. Never returns. Also on the 10th day, George discovers a secret door in the basement and finds a small room with concrete block walls painted a solid red. You can find a video of this little hidden room. Uh, it's like a little little kind of closety room next to a basement pantry. It's on YouTube. Not scary by itself, but it would freak me out with everything else going on for sure. Uh, George also would say later that he saw an image of Ronnie DeFeo's face floating around in the red room when he turned the basement light off. Super creepy. Uh, okay, man. Uh, day 11. December 28th, Father Mancuso, still ill. George met a coworker at a bar not far from his new house. It was the same bar that Butch had gone to after killing his family, and he's still uh, unshaven and, and filthy. George apparently looks a lot like Butch did, to the point that the bartender dropped his glass when he saw him. George's coworker was also worried about George and the business, and they talked, and, uh, and he'd worried that, you know, George isn't looking good. And he's not doing any payroll, and that's not good. All right, day 12, December 29th, George wakes up with a cut over his eye and a bum ankle. He thought he'd fallen during the night when he got up to check the boathouse and stoked the fire some more. At least he thought he did, you know, again. But Kathy noticed distinct teeth marks on his ankle. Like, what fucking bit him? What happened? Uh, and, uh, you know, he can't keep going, just not going into work. You know, today he, he goes in. He has to meet someone over some some tax auditing issues. And uh, it was the first time he'd come to the office and moved into the Amityville house when employees asked where he'd been, told him he'd been sick. Kathy hears noises from the sewing room this day. She goes upstairs, finds the door closed, notices that Missy and the boys are playing in the rooms. What the hell is in that room? You know? God. Uh, Kathy's too scared to look, and she goes and lays in bed. Uh, George finds uh, some details of the DeFeo murders this day, does a little bit of research, and for the first time realizes the death, uh, time of death for the DeFeos was estimated to be in 3.15 a.m. And he's been waking up at 3.15 uh, a.m. every night. How do you not fucking, again, be like, all right, get in, get in the car, everybody. We're out of here. Uh, Father Mancuso is still too sick to come and check on the Lutz family, and now he also has a painful red rash on his palms. Day 13, December 30th, Kathy tells George that someone had touched her in the kitchen a few days earlier. She tells him there is definitely something wrong with their new home. Uh, yeah, you think? Uh, December 31st, 1975, day 14, New Year's Eve, George wakes up at 2.30 a.m. instead of 3.15. I don't know. Wakes up at 4 a.m. too. Uh, he's feeling financially stressed out. He owes a lot of tax money at work. New jobs are coming in. He starts fantasizing about money, finding it around the house. He heard that Faye was well off. Maybe he'd hid money around the house. You know, maybe he'd hid money in the boathouse. Maybe that was why he felt drawn into the boathouse. And I'm thinking he takes a shower around this time. I'm thinking he at least showers because they don't keep harping about that, uh, in the book. So, you know, clean himself up a little bit. Tanny and Chris threaten to run away from the home after Kathy finds them fighting in their rooms. Uh, she finds Missy watching them with a grin on her face, like a devilish grin. The kid's behavior continues to become more quarrelsome. Missy uh, starts talking to Jody. You know, flies are fucking buzzing around the sewing room. Father Mancuso's rash on his hands has turned into some kind of stigmata-like wound. Wounds, since it's both hands. Day 15, January 1st, 1976. New Year, same old spooky shit, Amityville. Uh, George and Kathy wake up around 1 a.m. to find their bedroom window open. Cold wind blown into the house. 
Checking the rest of the house, they find their uh, doors and windows open around the house. The whole house is cold, except for Missy's bedroom, which is hot as a furnace, and the little rocking chair moving back and forth on its own. Gah! When George uh, walked into Missy's room, uh, he notices the moving chair, steps towards it, and it stops rocking immediately. And he shit himself. No, that would be me. That would be me in that situation. Uh, George tells Kathy to take Missy, who is sleeping downstairs. Uh, She does, and George runs upstairs to check on the boys on the third floor. They're sleeping. They're okay. The next day, uh, George uh, goes into work to check on his business to find that the business is crumbling. You know, like, I'm sorry, I guess it'd be that day, you know, later after that middle of the night. His life is falling apart. His business is going bankrupt. Something strange is happening in his house. Kathy feels the presence in the kitchen again. Smells a strange perfume again. Tries calling Father Mancuso again. But uh, feeling like the entity is near her, she drops the phone and just runs from the room. That night, after turning off the lights to go to bed, Kathy sees unblinking red eyes outside the living room window staring back at her. She screams. Fuck, of course she does. George looks outside, sees him too. When he turns the light on and runs outside, there's nothing there, and I have chills again. Damn it. Day 16, January 2nd. George wakes up to find the door of the garage nearly ripped off from its metal frame. How could this happen? Not wake up anyone in the house. And who could do this? What could do this? He doesn't have time to find out. He's got to go to work, try and save his business. If he goes bankrupt, none of these other problems matter. Later that day, the kitchen entity, reeking of perfume, grabs Kathy yet again. Uh, And then this time, second spirit grabs her as well. They start having some kind of, you know, poltergeist tug of war. Start fighting for control of her. She's she's the human meat in a demon sandwich. Never a good spot to be, man. Hate it when I'm the meat in a demon sandwich. Then she passes out, wakes up later on the kitchen floor. George stops at a local Amityville bar on his way home from work, ends up talking to a bartender about his house. The bartender tells him he used to have nightmares about that house. Says he used to have dreams of some strange group of people in hoods used to sacrifice dogs and pigs in some room on the second floor. George immediately thinks of the sewing room, the flies, Jody the pig. When he gets home, George and Kathy come to the conclusion that something sinister, something paranormal is going on in their house. They want Father Mancuso to come check it. But he's too ill. He speaks with them on the phone until once again, static cuts it off. Day 17, January 3rd, George notices a horrible stench coming from the basement red room. He forces his way down to the room, shining his flashlight around it. The stench is so strong, he vomits, has to return upstairs, decides to brick the room up so that no one could enter it again. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Just, you know, just brick it up, buddy. Just brick up that stink. You know, don't worry about what's causing the smell. Just brick it up. Brick it up. The bricks fix smell. It's not like stink can get through some porous brick. Uh, George tells Kathy that he wants to, to bring over to the girlfriend of his coworker, Eric. Uh, he's heard that she, she has experience investigating haunted houses. He's desperate. That night, a ceramic lion they had in the sewing room uh, bears his fangs at both George and Kathy as they walk past the room. Oh, ho, ho, fun times. Fun times at Amityville. Day 18, January 4th, George wakes up to hear what sounds like a marching band parading through his living room. Runs downstairs. Suddenly, the house is totally and eerily silent. Again, weird detail. Demon pig, ghost who steals loose change, and now a fucking phantom marching band. Not your typical ghost story details. Uh, George runs back upstairs to check on his wife, Kathy. Finds her sound asleep, but floating in midair, several feet above her bed, levitating. Uh, Dazed, George uh, tells Kathy uh, she just fell off the bed when when she wakes up after he pulls her back down. Uh, He does not tell her about seeing her float there. I don't think I would play it that cool. If I woke up to find my wife levitating, uh, that's when that's when the family gets to hear daddy scream. You know, I am freaking out. Just, what the fuck? Baby, baby, stop it. Stop floating around like that. You're freaking me out. Quit it. Don't do that anymore. Don't do that anymore. Less it's sexual. Less it's sexual. You might be able to do some cool sex stuff if you can float, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, George calls Father Mancuso again, tells the priest about the smells, the touches, the red eyes, seeing Kathy levitate, etc. 
Father Mancuso agrees to head over, and then a loud moaning sound comes through the phone line, and suddenly Father Mancuso feels like he's been slapped in the face. He falls to the floor, asks God to give him the strength to return to the Amityville house, but he doesn't. Day 19, January 5th, another priest in Father Mancuso's rectory gets a strange phone call telling him to tell Father Mancuso not to come back to the Amityville house or he'll die. And then that's it. The phone just goes dead. Not surprisingly, uh, Father Mancuso does not come back to the house. Uh, while exploring how to cover up the red room in the basement, George discovers moisture in another wall and realizes there may be a well underneath his house. Makes a little mental note about that. And then later, he's talking to his friends. Uh, you know, the one the, with the girlfriend, who's the paranormal investigator, you know, the amateur paranormal sleuth. And she tells him that she thinks his spirits are coming from a well. And he, she tells him that before he tells her that he's found a well. Uh, she thinks these wells connect as gateways between the spirit world and our own. You know, looks like, looks like he's got to reinforce that well wall now, man. He's got a well wall to reinforce now. He's got a stink wall to build. So much, so much wall, wall shit in his life right now. Uh, day 20, January 6th, the weather turns colder. Kathy and George bring the family dog Harry inside. Missy wants to play with Harry uh, in her room. Harry doesn't want to. And uh, she, wants, she wants Harry to play with her and Jody. And Harry hides under the bed. And then when her brother Chris finally opens the door, dog bolts from the room, can't be convinced to come back there. Day 21, January 8th, George wakes up to find Kathy levitating above their bed again. He grabs her, pulls her back to the bed. She wakes up. She's suddenly transformed in some fucking 90-year-old hag demon thing. Saliva dripping from her toothless mouth, sunken eyes, staring back at him. And then he flees the house, never to return. He can put up with a lot of shit, but he's not going to put up with an ugly wife. It's too much. No. He watches Kathy run over to the bathroom mirror and scream when she sees herself. There's no hag staring back at her, but she does have dark circles under her eyes. She looks very unwell. George talks to Father Mancuso on the phone again, and after hearing about the second levitation and transformation into a hag, he tells them he is into that shit. That's the one kink he's willing to leave the priesthood for. He's been looking for a floating hag. He's been looking for a floating hag for 17 goddamn years, and now he's got it. No, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He, uh, he tells him to take the family and leave the house before it gets worse. George tells him, you know, his friend, uh, Eric, his Eric's girlfriend, Francine, is coming over. She's the paranormal lady. Check things out. He wants to see what she finds out. And after the phone call, you know, he shivers, shakes. Father Mancuso, this is. Father Mancuso shivers, shakes, and sneezes blood into some tissue. Just talking to George seems to have intensified his illness. Well, Francine comes over and checks out the home that night. She smells strange odors, feels unusual cold spots in the house. She also senses the spirits of an elderly couple in the kitchen who are now lost spirits, she says. She has to be taken to the basement, to the red room, and to where the well might be. She tells George that something terrible has happened down there. She goes into a trance, and then she says that something terrible has happened in this basement. Someone has harmed themselves. Someone has died. There are angry spirits, and the house needs to be exorcised. And she snaps out of her trance, and then she gets the fuck out of there. Day 22, January 8th, Kathy's brother Jimmy and his bride Carrie come over to visit and spend the night because they're idiots. Why would you do that if you're hearing about this stuff? Well, apparently, George and Kathy uh, have not been talking much about it. They haven't been, they have, they've been downplaying it. They, they, don't want, they, they don't think people will believe them. So they come over, have some drinks, and just crash there, hang out, family fun. 11 p.m., everybody goes to bed. 3.15 a.m., George wakes up to hear Carrie screaming now, runs downstairs to Missy's room. Kathy soon follows. Jimmy was comforting his wife, or is comforting his wife in the room, uh, who, who just said that she had been, uh, she woke up when something touched her foot. She woke up to see what looked like a sick little boy sitting at the foot of her bed asking her to help him. And then the boy asked her where Missy and Jody were, and then he disappeared, and I got the goddamn chills again. Kathy ran to check on Missy who was sleeping in a dressing room. Uh, she's totally fine, comfortably sleeping there. George goes, grabs the family crucifix, 
the one that was turned upside down earlier in, in, their, in their stay. He carries it from room to room and has Kathy recite the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then a loud voice cuts her off. Will you stop? And for some reason, Jimmy and Carrie uh, do not just throw themselves out windows and just cartoonishly run away. Like with a little puff of smoke and everything. Day 23, January 9th, Father Mancuso calls George, hears about the voice, begs George to take his family and leave the house. Tells him not to pray to the spirits again either. It's only going to piss him off. Kathy tells George she wants to leave that night. Enough is enough. And when she tells him, George loses his shit, man. He tells her that with work falling apart, all they have is this fucking house. And if they walk away from it, it's going to ruin them. He screams at the house, you sons of bitches, get out of my house. He throws all the windows open around the house, continues to scream for the spirits to get out. And if, it sounds, if this sounds crazy to you, like, like why not just leave? It makes total sense to me. I would react the same way. Just bought a house. You know, you got money problems with the business. Uh, you know, I, I keep saying, like, why don't I just leave? But really, you know, if that's all you got, I'm not walking away and just straight into financial ruin because of a little weird paranormal shit. Well, I don't know. I I, I, I might have left once it got to levitation. I might have left at that. Well, maybe the p- pig eyes. Maybe the red pig eyes. I might have left. But uh, but also, you know, I don't know. I might be more afraid of losing my house than I am of finding a ghost in it. But but don't show up right now if you're a ghost. Day 24, January 10th. Kathy calls her mom and tells her to come over immediately. Kathy wants to show her mom ugly red welts that have just formed. She just woke up and found them, uh, this trail of them. Uh, that start just above her pubic hair and just, you know, go up to her under her breast and they feel hot to the touch. Like it was like something had slashed and burned her. Like, like Kathy's mom, like basically like almost burns herself when she touches one. Fuck, super weird if that happened, obviously. Uh, later this same day, Danny gets his hand slammed in his bedroom window. George runs upstairs, can't get the window to open. He takes a hammer, hits the window, tries to break it. It reacts like it's suddenly indestructible. George curses at the window and suddenly it just lifts on its own. <laughs> Kathy screams when she sees Danny's hand. His fingers are slammed flat, like cartoonishly smushed. George goes to call a doctor, but the line is dead. Of course it is. He drives Danny to a hospital where the orderly on duty is amazed at the condition of Danny's fingers, crushed from the cuticle uh, to the second knuckle down. But x-rays reveal they're somehow not broken. He bandages Danny's hands, uh, gives him some painkillers, and then George takes Danny home. Day 25, January 11th, George wakes up early in the morning to realize that a passing storm has shattered several of the home's windows and starts nailing plastic sheets and some old boards over the broken windows to keep the cold air from flowing freely into the house. And also, by the way, hand is fine. Kid's hand is fine. So that's pretty weird. It's magically healed, all said. George invites someone from a local paranormal investigation to check out his house. The investigator has George take the family dog, Harry, around the house, see how the dog reacts to various forms, uh, rooms of the house, excuse me, and the dog refuses to go anywhere near that sewing room on the second floor, the creepy fly room. And flies are still showing up periodically in there, by the way. Uh, day 26, January 12th, George wakes up in the middle of the night screaming, I'm coming apart! After having a strange dream about some hooded figure in his house. Missy wanders into his room, his little girl, and says that Jody is in her room. George runs to Missy's room and sees red eyes staring from outside of Missy's window ugh, into the house. Missy points at them and says, there's Jody right there. He wants to come inside. Fuck that. Kathy runs into the room, picks up a chair, throws it at the eyes, shattering the window. They hear an animal squeal in pain, and then the red eyes are gone. Okay, this point, uh, even if I'm going to be financially ruined, I I think think this is it for me. I I think I'd be it probably a long ways before that, but definitely at this point. Father Mancuso still has not uh, come back to the Lutz home. His local bishop doesn't want him to return. He doesn't want to return. Honestly, he's scared. You know, uh, and his bishop is worried about his health. You know, he's gotten sick, so sick the last time. He's still not better. 
George doesn't want to leave his family alone in the house, but he has to leave to deal with the IRS, that whole unpaid tax situation at work. His work life, his home life are crumbling. IRS audit and haunted house. whole world's getting shit on. He's got a red-eyed pig in his house. Uh, after George leaves, uh, Kathy starts talking to her daughter, Missy, about the pig Jody. Missy tells her mom that Jody talked to her all the time, told her about the little boy who lived in her room. And, you know, Jody just told her that the little boy got sick and died in her room. No big deal. And then Missy told her that Jody just, you know, told told Missy that she would just, you know, have to stay in the house forever so she could play with the little boy. That's, oh, my God. Beyond, if my, if my, one of my kids told me that when they were little, oh, Jesus, I would be so scared. I would not sleep that night. When, when George comes home, uh, he finds a family dog, Harry, freaking out, throwing himself against the end of his leash, trying to trying to rip his chain apart and reach, reach the boathouse. Something's freaking him out there. George practically has to drag the dog back into the house and away from the boathouse. January 13th, day 27, in the middle of the night, George wakes up suddenly in a trance, waking up Kathy by speaking in different voices and languages Kathy had never heard before. Suddenly, George speaks in English, yelling over and over, It's in Chris's room. It's in Chris's room. George, before waking up, remembers dreaming about a dark presence in Chris's room, a hooded figure picking up the boy, taking him away. George calls Father Mancuso again, tells him that he was going to take the priest's advice and he's going to leave. But when George tries to leave the house, his car won't start. When he tries to call for help, the phone doesn't work. The line is dead. A huge storm has moved in. The temperature has dropped, pouring down rain, freezing rain, fucking ghosts and storms, man. Why does it always have to be, you know, a haunting situation in a, a downpour? Why can't it be when the sun's shining bright, you know? The family decides they're going to have to wait out the storm, you know, and then they'll leave the house. Eventually, George realizes they're just going to have to spend one last night in the house. Of course they are. And, of course, more crazy shit happens. Missy, George, and Kathy all sleep in uh, their bed, and then the dog, Harry, uh, is laying by the bedroom door. And then the boys, Danny and Chris, sleep in, in their room, which is fucking insane if that's true. Let me get this straight. You're fleeing from a haunted house, you know? You're going to be leaving the next morning, and then you have the kids. Yeah, yeah just go sleep in a separate room. Yeah, I know we've been seeing red-eyed pig demons around the house, but you know what? You'll be good. Just go sleep in a room by yourself. I, I would be too scared to sleep in a separate room. Uh, so George lays in bed and watches uh, Kathy get out of bed in a trance, start to leave the room. He can't wake her when he tries screaming at her. Instead of waking up, her body just goes limp, and then she lays, you know, he lays her back into bed. Then he hears noises from the boys' room. Of course he does, you dumb shit. Why'd you let him go there in the first place? And, you know, their, their room is above him. Above his room, it sounds like their beds are being slammed into the floor all around, moving around the room. He tries to get up and go check on him, but suddenly he's paralyzed. Dresser drawers are slamming open and shut. Doors around the house start slamming, opening, uh, you know, open and shut. Windows opening and shutting. Suddenly he hears voices, so many voices in the living room. It's a fucking marching band's back. He can't move. And then suddenly he feels something on the bed with him. Something stepping on him on the bed feels like hooves, pig hooves, red-eyed demon pig hooves, and he passes out. Day 28, January 14th, suddenly around 7 a.m., George wakes up to Chris and Danny screaming at him. They're yelling about a monster with no face trying to attack them in the room. Again, what the fuck did I tell you about the room? Never, never separate the family in a haunted room situation. Okay, suddenly George uh, sees Harry, the dog, jump up, start snarling and barking at something in the hallway. He finally breaks his paralysis. He throws himself out of his bed. When he makes it to the hallway, he sees a large hooded figure, the one from his nightmares, standing down the hall, looking at him, pointed at him. He tells the family to run, to get the fuck out of the house. He doesn't have to tell them twice. They are gone. They are out of there, right? Nice hanging with you, Jody, demon pig. We're, we're, we're going to find a new place to stay. They eventually make it outside. They climb into the family van, and this time, unlike the day before, it starts. Thank Nimrod. They speed down the road, would never return to that home again. 
And I'm guessing for the rest of his life, George would eat a shitload of bacon. Like, really just, just can I get uh, bacon with a side of bacon? Just fuck you, Jody. Caused me to lose my house, you Satan swine. And that is it for this haunted time sec timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, so that's it. So that's the highlights. Believe that story or don't. Uh, I don't believe all of it. I don't believe the ghost taking 1500 bucks, for example. But part of me thinks something happened to that family in that house. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know why I do. Maybe the dark energy of those strange DeFeo murders just lingered there somehow. Still can't get past six people being shot in their beds and none of them trying to escape. You know, and, and the neighbor's not hearing anything. That's the kicker for me on this whole story. Who knows? Maybe maybe YouTuber high-tech harassment was right. It's all, it's all secret energy harassment. It's all energy beams. It's all kill beams. Uh, all I know is that we're going to take five more looks at Amityville with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. At roughly 3 a.m. in the early morning of November 13th, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald Joseph Butch DeFeo Jr. took a 35 caliber Marlin rifle, executed his entire immediate family who were sleeping at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island. How did no one run? Number two, the Amityville house was not the site of other murders and was not built on an Indian burial ground, but it did just get sold for around $850,000 and will probably be on the market again soon if you want a nice pad with a boathouse where you can add a little extra spice to watching scary movies. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine watching a horror movie in the middle of the night by yourself in that house? Would you do, would you do, would you do that? I don't know, man. I don't know if I would. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe part of me believes it, and maybe part of you believes it. Number three, the book The Amityville Horror was published in 1977 by Jay Anson and would go on to sell roughly 10 million copies, spawn several successful movies. Uh, turns out there's big money in red-eyed uh, demon pigs. Number four, the Lutz family did live in that house. No one will know if what they claim the experience really happened, but both George and Kathy did pass lie detector tests when questioned about this insane story. And number five, new info, Google demonic boy photograph and the iconic image that pops up was taken in the Amityville house a few weeks after the Lutzes moved out. Even if you don't believe in ghosts or demons, odds are, you know, you'll have seen this photo before. It was taken during an investigation by paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. Seems to show a small boy with glowing eyes. I know I kind of referenced this before, but this is more detail. Glowing eyes in the doorway to the left of the frame, even though there were no children in the house at that time. So super spooky if that's real. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Special thanks to Time Sucker, Charles Belcher, anyone else. I forgot to mention for suggesting this bonus topic. And thanks to everyone who voted for it on Instagram. Uh, excited to suck on the Bermuda Triangle. That's right, it's the Bermuda Triangle this Monday. A lot of requests for that one, especially recently. But, but actually, the length of the show, that was one of the first requested topics, and they keep pouring in, so you know what? All right. I'll do it. Uh, one of the first mysteries I can ever actually remember being interested in as a kid. You know, disappearing planes, disappearing ships, speculation about UFOs behind some of the disappearances, you know? Or is it just crazy weather? What the, What's going on? What's going on out there over that cold, deep water? Why is Bermuda, you know, a name we recognize? Find out how much you don't know about the Bermuda Triangle and what has happened there over the years on Monday. Big thanks again to Time Sucker Superstar Sydney Shives for keeping track of all the email topics. Thanks to all of you who follow the show on social media at Time Suck Podcast, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube uh, coming up in, in, in just a couple days. And again, thanks for all the interest. Uh, oh, and, but don't get too excited. It's just going to be the audio with the, with the, a flat background. Not doing a video uh, anytime soon. I can barely, barely keep all this going. 
I don't, I don't know if it would work for this show anyway. Maybe like some slideshows or something down the road, down the road. But at least be on YouTube where I know some people just like to listen to audio off YouTube. Uh, I'm actually one of those people. And again, thanks for all the interest in becoming a space lizard when the Time Suck app comes out. Check out some pics of the uh, uh, on, on Instagram uh, of, of the Avatar artwork. It's going to be featured in the app done by Danger Brain. Fucking amazing. Uh, there's a Nimrod avatar on, Insta- on Instagram right now. The Bojangles avatar. It looks so good. And the Bit Elixir team working hard to make this app amazing. Also, thanks for the recent PayPal donations. Amazon purchases made via timesuckpodcast.com for the store purchases of Timesuck hats, tees, sign books, and CDs. All of that helps so much. And well, and, and, and more um, uh, shirts just got restocked, by the way. So I know it was out of a bunch of sizes. A lot of that's getting taken care of right now. Uh, and welcome to the uh, Suck uh, You International Time Suckers. Uh, a lot more of you guys have been lately. Been seeing a lot more downloads from the UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, Belgium, Russia, all over the place. So that's awesome. Thanks for joining the cult of the curious, getting some, you know, a lot of uh, international topic requests, which I love. Been doing a lot more of those. All right. Uh, let's catch up on previous episodes and recent happenings. Uh, happenings with some time sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. All right. First update, Amelia Earhart update. There's recently uh, uh, been an uncovered photo. I talked about it in the episode uh, just a little while ago. That seems to show Earhart and her navigator Noonan standing on an island after they had supposedly crashed. And then this photo, you know, led some people to believe that maybe she did land, but then maybe she was taken captive by and executed by Japanese military. Well, uh, time sucker uh, Dennis Bashaw wrote in saying, Hail Nimrod, Bojangles, and the high time suck priest in comments protect us from Lucifina. Oh, I'm doing my best. I'm trying. Uh, this is regarding the Amelia Earhart podcast. Apparently, the photograph, which some conspiracy theorists say show Amelia and her navigator, Fred Noonan, does not date to when they are claiming. A Japanese historian searched the Japanese National Archive and in 30 minutes found the photo. It turns out that the photo dates to 1935, not 1937, so it could not have been a picture of Earhart. Ah, man, keep on sucking and I'll keep listening. Okay, well, thank you, Dennis. And, you know, I, and I... I will say that when you see the picture, it does look like it could be Earhart, but again, she's not facing the camera. Noonan is par- partially obscured by another person, so all right. If it was two years earlier, I guess yeah, it could have been somebody else. So maybe she really did just crash in the Pacific, and uh, or you know what? Maybe 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 she did that, and then she was the ghost of Amityville. We don't know. We don't know. JFK update from Joshua Russell. Hail prophet of Nimrod, according to multiple news sources on October 26th of this year, around 10,000 of the remaining hidden documents held by the National Archives are set to be released regarding JFK. Uh, From what I've read, the only person who can block the reveal is the president who can block it for up to 25 years. I don't think Trump's going to do that. He's he's, he's struggling with popularity enough as it is. He doesn't want want to be like, "Eh, nope, you're not getting Kennedy. Uh, according to the curator of the archives, the plan is to upload and release all of them at the same time on the same day. So with that amount of rapid information, don't expect to see any real info to be revealed worth any substance for a while. Oh, okay, but I'm hoping to hear some juicy info from it. Hoping for the CIA conspiracy to be real, uh, that would be equally fucked up and great. Apparently some of the CIA are trying to pre- prevent the document reveal, so maybe it's true. Ah, exciting stuff, Joshua. I hope it's true, man. God, I hope, they, I, hope it's, I hope it's crazy explosive, blows our minds. Part, part of me, though, thinks that, like, let's say it was the CIA. I know I'm going to sound a little conspiracy nut here. But if it was, part of me thinks just, they shredded it. They shredded it. And then they'll just, you know, release some other stuff that's just kind of, like, ambiguous or whatever. But who knows, man? Maybe we'll get our minds, our curious minds exploded. That would be amazing. So I, I hope so. And, and last update for today. Here's some just pure silliness. This just made me smile. Very hard. A lot of you guys' emails make me smile, man. And again, you know, when I when I when I can't get back to all of them, sorry. It's just uh, 
man, it's been busy trying to get all this app stuff going and keep these episodes going and, and you know, and, and turn this into a business and been doing a lot of stand-up, recording some new stuff stand-up-wise. And, uh, well, yeah, yeah, I try to try to get back uh, to some emails. Have gotten back to some emails. Uh, Sydney's putting all your guys' stuff on the list. Uh, uh, but anyway, I, I do see them, and they mean very, very much to me uh, every time. Okay. So Casey Green says, I wanted to let the sucker community in, latest, in on the latest challenge that I've created in my own head. First of all, I don't care what anyone else says. Getting Michael motherfucking McDonalded is one of my highlights of each episode. I enjoy it so much that I've created a Michael McDonald Pandora station on my account. Uh, each time you break out that Triple M, I immediately pause the podcast. I switch to Pandora. I turn on my Triple M radio. Now comes the challenge. If the song that I was McDonalded by is the same song that comes up on Pandora, I fucking win. Unfortunately, I've yet to win the Triple M Challenge, and I don't know what the prize for winning is. I assume to, I have to assume that Lord Nimrod will send his Prophet Bojangles to pick me up in a stretched white limousine. When I open the passenger door, none other than Michael McDonald's in the back wearing a black tuxedo t-shirt and sipping something fancy that was poured from a crystal decanter. I quickly change into my white tux tee, don't want to bite MMM style, and we have a legendary night of swooning and carousing on the town. Ah, a boy can dream. Hopefully you will pass this along to our fellow soccer and they can enjoy the triple M challenge. Keep up the great work. I can't wait to be a space lizard. Oh, thank you. I can't wait for you to be a space lizard either. Casey. I love it, man. Love the triple M challenge. You time sucking goofball. Thanks for sending that in, man. And I don't, I don't even know if I have McDonald's you guys in a minute. Ah, it's tough, man. Uh, sometimes, you know, you're trying to track everything. I guess, you know, I just, uh, I just, I just, I keep forgetting we're not in love anymore. I keep forgetting things will never be the same again. I keep forgetting how you made that so clear. I keep forgetting every time you're near. Every time I see you smile. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. I hope you guys won the game. Oh, you guys just won that game. Have a good weekend, everybody. Uh, back with more suck on Monday. Hail Nimrod. Don't let Lysafina haunt your house with her red-eyed demon bacon coast ghost pig minion. And, and keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.